Specialty Stories, session number eight. Whether you're a pre-med or medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to the Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and I am your host for this podcast, as well as many other podcasts. You can check out everything that I do or we do here at the medical school headquarters. You can see all of our podcasts at mededmedia.com. That's M-E-D-E-D Media. This week, I have another specialty for you to learn about. This one is a specialty that has a lot of sad facets, but also a lot of awesome facets. And you'll hear Shika talk all about it, about being a hematologist oncologist. My name is Shika Jane, and I'm a hematology oncology physician. And are you in a academic or community-based setting? So I'm in an academic setting. Um, it's a little bit of a hybrid group because it used to be a community group that was bought by uh, the academic center. And so now we are academics who practice more clinical medicine, but also have research involved. Interesting. Okay. And how long have you been practicing? Uh, for about a year and a half. Relatively new. Is it, as ex- is it as exciting as you thought it would be still Absolutely. this fresh? Absolutely, it is. The first uh, couple of months are a little bit scary because you don't really have anybody to oversee what you're doing. Um, And when someone says, who's the attending, and they say your name, you think they've made a mistake the first couple of times. Uh, But it is definitely still exciting a year and a half in. That's great. When did you know you wanted to be a hematologist-oncologist? So it actually was the second year of my medicine residency. And I remember it very clearly, actually. I was on the bone marrow transplant service, and I had this patient who was so involved in his care, and he was so engaged and so interested in what we were doing and wanting to work with us as a team, and it was extremely collaborative, which I hadn't seen in a lot of other uh, subspecialties. And I really liked that aspect of working with the patients and having the patients, you know, respect what you were saying, but also give their own opinions. A lot of the patients had done their own homework and done their own research. And um, I trained at a public hospital. So I saw a lot of different types of patients. And no matter where what background they came from, they they would always come with at least some questions, because when it comes to cancer medicine, There's a lot of stuff online, and a lot of people, when they find out they have cancer, they do a lot of their own research. So I really liked that kind of team approach that a lot of the patients viewed uh, their cancer diagnosis as. So once I realized that I could actually practice medicine working with my patients as opposed to just dictating to them, um, I realized it was a really amazing field to be able to practice. So I'm going to go off on a tangent here, which I normally don't do, but how how is that different than when we often hear physicians complaining about patients using Dr. Google and, and coming in and telling the, pa- the, the physician what they want? 
So Dr. Google is very dangerous. I still to this day tell all my patients, do not Google what I'm about to tell you. Um, and it does happen. And it can get frustrating because they do come in with a lot of uh, misinformation. They often come in with a lot of cancer myths or um, things that are not really based in fact. So that can get frustrating if you let it get frustrating. But the really cool thing in oncology is when, I mean, it's it's really scary for patients when they find out that they have cancer, when they hear the big C word, they get really scared. And so it's human nature to go start looking for all this information. The really cool thing is they're interested in their diagnosis and they really want to work to fight it. So they bring in this information because they think, you know, they want to give themselves, they want to give you the most information that they have. And oftentimes they are more willing to listen because it is a cancer diagnosis and because you're a cancer specialist and they want to do everything they can to get rid of the cancer. Um, a lot of times, you know, when I was doing my medicine residency, I'd get really frustrated when patients would come in with information on diabetes and hypertension and say, oh, I don't need my medication anymore because, you know, my diabetes is fixed and this website says that I don't need my insulin. And it's harder for people to really wrap their minds around the complications and the long-term effects that can happen by having uncontrolled diabetes or uncontrolled hypertension because it's just not something that we talk about as much in the general public. But cancer is a diagnosis that everyone knows can be very dangerous can be very difficult to deal with. So I found that patients were more willing to listen and work with you, even if they came in with their own research. And they're all, you know, they're just like in any specialty, there's patients who will come in and they won't necessarily believe what you're saying or they'll believe Dr. Google more. But um, it, it seems to me, at least through training and as an attending, that it seems more collaborative and they're more willing to listen to your opinion and listen to your medical advice and um, when it comes to cancer, it's just a very different mindset and a very different mentality um, than some of the more chronic illnesses that people don't necessarily realize can cause long-term problems. Yeah, there's there's a, a figurative clock ticking when you get that cancer diagnosis. So I think it, exactly. it opens up people's eyes. Okay, that makes sense. Right, exactly. No, I'm, I'm glad I, I went off on a tangent there. <laughs> what traits do you think lead to being a good... Well, actually, before I even ask that, so the, the term hematologist-oncologist, why are there two specialties wrapped into one? So hematology and oncology are very different, and they're also very similar. Um, as medicine progresses, they're actually becoming more and more uh, different as we go through care, but they're also becoming more and more similar. And it sounds like very contradictory, but I'll explain why. So hematology is the study of blood disorders. So that can be anything from an iron deficiency anemia to a lymphoma to uh, chronic you know, leukemias or acute leukemias. Um, the oncology's part is cancer diagnoses like solid tumors, so breast cancer, lung cancer, GI cancer. The reason they are so different is because hematology also includes a lot of benign disorders like gestational thrombocytopenia, where you see a pregnant woman who has a low platelet count or you know um, a B12 deficiency leading to anemia. So you also encompass these benign disorders, but then you also see um, what we call blood, blood tumors or blood cancers. The oncologist specifically only focuses on solid tumors. So they're different in that sense. But the really cool thing that's happening in Hemonc these days is um, the latest and greatest treatment are treatment options out there are actually immunotherapy, which is different from chemotherapy. And the reason I bring that up is um, these new treatments, we're finding similar treatments actually work for both 
the liquid or the blood tumors and the solid tumors. So there's actually becoming now a bit more overlap in some of the hematologic disorders and some of the oncologic disorders. But they are two separate fellowships um, that you, they typically are combined, um, but you can do just a hematology fellowship or just an oncology fellowship at certain institutions if you so desire. Okay. And remind me again, so your training is in both? In both. So I'm triple boarded in internal medicine, hematology, and oncology. Okay. Lots of tests. That's fun for you. <laughs> lots and lots of tests. <laughs> what traits do you think lead to being a good hemonc doc? So I think there's some of them are traits that are just good traits for if you want to be a clinical clinician, a, a clinical physician. So I think communication is really important. Um, you know, a lot of times you're dealing with very, very sensitive topics and you're, you have the privilege of being involved in people's most intimate parts of their life. You will be guiding them through positive curative treatments and you'll be guiding them through positive palliative and hospice treatments. So it's really important to have good people skills, good communication skills, and uh, good, the ability to really be empathic. Um, on top of that, because there's always changes and new developments and new treatments coming out, having a real thirst for knowledge and that desire to be a constant learner and to continue um, educating yourself, continue um, being involved in, uh, in online forums or whatever it is to keep you up to date on the latest treatment options is very important. You need to be willing to, to be constantly updating your, your repertoire. Um, and then it's always, you know, in a lot of medicine, research is important. In Hemonc, um, clinical research, I think, is extremely important because there are so many changes that are coming about. A lot of clinicians don't end up doing any research in their career, but being able to really read and appreciate research studies and understand how to analyze and interpret them is something important when you're trying to figure out what type of uh, treatment to give your patients as the treatment paradigms change. Okay. Describe a typical day for you. So Hemonc is typically an outpatient uh, field. Uh, you, my typical days, so I have clinic, most Hemonc docs who are in the community have clinic about four days a week. Um, if you're in academics, it's typically a couple of days a week. Uh, my clinic starts around eight in the morning and goes until about five in the evening. And uh, you see patients throughout the day. I'll see anything from, you know, people who are very, very sick to people who are cured to people who are just coming in for iron infusions for their iron deficiency. Um, I see my patients who are admitted to the hospital as well. So if I have a couple of patients on the inpatient service, either before clinic or after clinic, I'll go and round on them. And a couple days a week, I attend the tumor boards that we have at the hospital. Um, there's different tumor boards for different cancers. And I try to at least go to a couple of week just to make sure that I'm keeping myself up to date on the different uh, treatments and getting the opinions of a multidisciplinary board in some of my patients and how to treat them. Explain a little bit more what a tumor board is. So tumor board is actually something, I think it's a really cool experience. Um, it typically is uh, several oncologists. You'll also have radiation oncologists, surgical oncologists, pathologists will be there. Um, sometimes, depending on the tumor board you go to, if you go to a lung tumor board, the pulmonary doctors will be there. If you go to a GI tumor board, the GI doctors will be there. Um, and it's basically a multidisciplinary approach to treating patients. So 
what'll happen is you'll submit a case and you'll present that case. So if you had, you know, a 25 year old with metastatic lung cancer, you would pre present the case. Uh, the pathologist would describe whatever biopsies had been done. The radiologist would then describe the imaging. And then we would discuss the case, um, with everybody who was there, the surgeons would weigh in to see if there's anything that would be a surgical option. The radiation doctors decide, uh, would give their opinion on whether radiation is a good idea. And the oncologists talk about systemic therapy. And that way we come up with a plan as a um, multidisciplinary team. So everybody kind of weighs in. And that way the patient's able to get um, a really great uh, team approach to whatever plan they're going to have for their cancer. Are patients ever involved in that? So they typically aren't because of HIPAA. We can't really have patients there hearing about other patients. Um, typically what we do is we'll see the patient that week. We'll tell them we're going to present you at tumor board later this week. And then we'll tell you what we discussed next week and ha come up with a plan that works for you. Okay. Is there a lot of call for HEMOC docs? So it depends on your uh, practice that you're in. For us, what we do is uh, we take our own patients call during the week. So Monday through Thursday, if any of our patients get admitted to the hospital, we get paged, which typically results in maybe one page a week, one or two pages a week, I would say for me. Um, and that is just from home. So you just have to answer questions over the phone. You don't typically have to go in. And then on the weekends, the way my, um, my group does it is we take call every, about once a month on the weekends. And what that entails is going in and rounding on the patients who are in the hospital for a few hours in the morning and then taking the pager call for the weekend. So if any patients called with questions or if someone got admitted, we would get paged. But the nice thing about Hemonk is you very rarely have to actually go into the hospital. Most things can be handled over the phone when you're on call. Okay. Do you feel like you have good work-life balance? Absolutely. I, um, I have a two and a half year old daughter and my husband's also a physician. And, you know, there are days where I'll get home later than he does, or I have to leave earlier in the morning, but I really have the flexibility with this, with this position and with this career to do as much clinic or as little clinic as I want. I can start clinic when I want, I can finish when I want. And I, um, taking home call and not having to go in in the middle of the night is really great. Um, I'm able to make it to a lot of my daughter's activities. Uh, when you're in a field like this, people typically are very supportive. And so if you need to take a couple of hours off to go to an activity or a doctor's appointment or something, people are pretty willing to cover and help each other out. So I have a lot of flexibility. And I think a lot of hemonc docs feel that way. Great. Describe the the path through training to to end up where you you're at now. The the length of training and and uh, applications and stuff like that. Sure. So after the four years of medical school, um, first you have to match into an internal medicine internal internal medicine residency program. So you do three years of internal medicine. And uh, during your internal medicine residency, you apply for your fellowship. So that'll be a HEMONC fellowship, which is another three years. So it's four years of med school, three years of residency, and then three years of fellowship. Um, if you decide you only want to do HEME or only want to do ONC, uh, then you could do a fellowship in two years. But most people do both. The, the HEME-only and ONC-only fellowships, are. can you do those at a it at a heme onc fellowship, but you just tell the program that you only want to do one, or are or are they very specific heme only fellowships and onc only fellowships? 
They're very specific. So there's only a couple of hospitals that offer heme only or onc only. Um, for example, the NIH, I know, offers only heme or only onc, but they also offer if you want to do both, you can do both. Okay. Typically, people who only do heme or only do onc, they know going into fellowship that they want to only stay in academics. And by, um, by doing just one fellowship, they're able to uh, advance their research goals. So most people who aren't sure if they want to stay in academics or go into the community do both fellowships. And then if they decide afterwards that they want to specialize in just one, then they can decide that when they're done with fellowship. But it gives you a lot more flexibility if you do both fellowships. Okay. Is So two questions in one. Is matching competitive and what makes a competitive applicant to Hemonk Fellowship? So matching is pretty competitive. When I applied, Hemonk was, I think, the second or the third most competitive intro medicine uh, subspecialty field. So it is pretty competitive and part of it is because it's such a great work-life balance and because um, a lot of people find it extremely rewarding. So it has become more competitive in the last decade or so, I would say. Uh, things that would make you the most competitive applicant for Hemonk would be um, research is something that they really look at. So whether it's clinical research or bench research, those are two things that are very good to get started on as early as possible. Um, even if you don't necessarily get publications out of it, at least having that experience on your ARIS application and on your CV are very helpful, and they often come up on um, on interviews. I had published several case reports as well and had posters at things like the American College of Physician conferences and things along those lines show that you're interested in continually learning. Um, so those are also things that would make you very competitive. Obviously, you know, um, letters of recommendation are always helpful if it's possible. If you're interested in doing HEMONC and you're able to do uh, one of your elective rotations in HEMONC, that would be useful as well because you could get a letter from a physician in the field specifically who might also um, be able to help guide you into the types of fellowships that you want to be looking at. Do you see any bias between or any bias towards DO students versus MD students? So I think that it is becoming less and less than it used to be. Um, I actually went to Michigan State Medical School in the MD program, but Michigan State has an MD and a DO program. So I have a lot of friends who are also DOs, and I actually had some people in my fellowship who are also DOs. So I think that that... Um, that disparity from years ago is not there as much as it was anymore. I'm seeing less and less uh, people looking at the MD versus the DO as opposed to looking at the actual application. What should students be thinking about when choosing a fellowship training spot? Uh, do you mean like a location or the type of hospital or both? The, the program itself. How do you how do you evaluate? And obviously, on this side of it now, knowing the types of patients you're treating and and so forth, and looking back at your training, what maybe would you have done differently, or what would you have looked at differently to choose where you wanted to do a fellowship? So I think that is an excellent question. Um, when I was in residency, and this is probably going to be more useful for the med students as opposed to the pre-meds who are listening to this uh, podcast, but when I was looking at my fellowships, I looked at a wide variety. I looked at very, very academically rigorous programs, and I looked at more community programs. Um, I think the most important thing when you're in residency, if you decide to do Hemonk, is kind of figuring out 
if you think you're going to want to be more on an academic tract down the line, or if you think you might want to be in more of a clinical seeing patients tract down the line, or if you want something in between. Because there's some fellowship programs that are very, very focused on research and very focused on getting the, um, the fellows focused on one cancer type. For example, you might go to a fellowship and by the end of it see thousands of lung cancer patients, but only see two GI cancer patients. So those fellowships are really geared towards sending physicians into the academic world. And they're really focused on making you great academicians and making you very ready for research and ready for focus and ready for one path. Other fellowship programs are very good at giving you a very good overall clinical experience and seeing every type of oncologic disorder, seeing every type of hematologic disorder that you can see in those three years. And they really gear you towards either a private practice, clinical practice, or they give you the flexibility where if you decide to go into academics, you can make that decision down the line. You don't have to make that decision in your first year of fellowship. So that's something I didn't necessarily realize when I was applying for my fellowships. Um, I was definitely impressed with some of the very big academic centers that I was at, that I was interviewing at, that were um, NIH uh, certified, they were NCCN certified, so they had all these great qualifications, but the majority of the fellows who came out of there went only into academics. And then I interviewed at other places where there was a good mix of the fellows coming out going to either academics or into uh, private practice or clinical practice. So I think really looking at where the graduating fellows end up post-graduation is very useful in figuring out, do I already know I want to stay in the academic tract or do I think I want to do something um, less academic or do I not know? Do I want that flexibility to know in three years when I'm done? And I think that's something that they don't necessarily teach you in residency, but it's a very good thing to look for when you're looking at fellowships. After fellowship training, are there other opportunities to subspecialize? There are. So if you realize that you're very interested in bone marrow transplant, for example, some places offer an, another year of training for bone marrow transplant. Um, if you decide you want to subspecialize in, say, just lung cancer or GI cancer, and you end up at a large academic institution, there's a lot of on-the-job training. There's not necessarily a second fellowship for that but um, you have the option to do that. There's also some uh, oncologists go uh, into another year of palliative care training. Um, so that's another sub fellowship that you can do. Uh, so there's definitely other options if you decide to do further training after Hemonc. Okay. What do the boards look like for Hemonc? Well, they are not easy. <laughs> they, um, so the Hemonc boards are two separate days. Uh, they're typically in October, and uh, you do. They're basically back to back. So you'll finish your fellowship in July, and then the boards will be in October, and it's sometime in the end of October. So you'll have one on like a Tuesday, and the next one on Wednesday. Um, so it is uh, it is difficult because you're taking two board exams. But the nice thing is because Heme and Ankh do have some overlap. They're studying for one kind of helps studying for the other. Um, but there is a lot of stuff on the heme boards that you wouldn't see on the onc boards. Do you know the pass rate? 
Um, I don't know the exact pass rate, but I think it's somewhere between 85 and 90%, I think. But I'd have to look at that for sure. Okay. In your position now, on the other end of training, what do you wish you knew, other than what we kind of already talked about with with fellowship training, what do you wish you knew before going into your fellowship training? Um, Well, I think... One thing that's really important, and this is actually something I discussed with some of the fellows when I was a resident, Piedmont can be very emotionally draining. And I think you know that going in, but I had never done really outpatient Piedmont going into my fellowship. I'd only done inpatient. And one thing I asked one of the residents, because we were having a really bad, a really bad month of just really sick patients. And, and I asked, I asked this fellow, I said, why did you choose this field? Everybody's dying. It's sad. And he told me, he said, well, first of all, outpatient hemonc is very different from inpatient. And second of all, there are very few fields in medicine where you can actually cure someone. And the thing that I think helped me get through some of the tough times in fellowship was thinking back to that, to that statement that, yes, there are a lot of really difficult people we deal with, a lot of difficult cases we deal with, but we really have the opportunity in many cases to cure people. And I wish that someone had had told me that early on because I think it would have given me that little silver lining or that, that hope that you, that you need sometimes to get through really difficult, sad cases. Um, so that's, that's one thing I wish that, uh, that I had kind of thought about before going in. Um, and the other thing is just realizing, and this is something I knew, but I don't think you really realize it until you get in there. Um, is making sure you really keep a good work-life balance. I'm very fortunate in that I have my husband who has been with me throughout a lot of this, and we've kept each other sane, I think, going through all of this training. Um, but keeping a good work-life balance and making sure that you still take time to take care of yourself and um, you know, do self-care and make sure that you're mentally doing okay and make sure that you're still doing things that give you stress relief because everybody needs that. And it's really easy to get kind of bogged down in the weeds of fellowship and trying to learn everything you can. Um, so it's actually, it's something people used to tell me, but I don't think I really took it to heart. So I guess it's more something that I wish that I had listened to more when I was going through it. Okay. What do you wish primary care providers knew more about Hemonk and what you do? So I think one of the biggest difficulties that oncologists faced face when it comes to primary care physicians um, is we, whenever a patient has cancer, a lot of times they get very, very sick while you're treating them. And oftentimes most side effects or most complications or things that happen, people kind of attribute to, to the cancer or to the chemotherapy and don't necessarily always look for other, other issues because there's, there's always this cancer diagnosis or this chemo treatment that's going on. So it kind of becomes a default that that must be the problem. Um, so sometimes that can get kind of frustrating because we feel like uh, sometimes things aren't looked into as closely because it's kind of written off as, oh, it's the cancer or oh, it's the chemo. One thing I will say, um, the primary care physicians that I work with are fantastic and they really work with us. I think the communication is really key. Um, and we've, educated each other when it comes to dealing with oncology patients. A lot of times, um, and I think a lot of primary care docs know this, but 
a lot of times the onc patients don't necessarily hear what you're saying. So when you talk about prognosis, when you talk about, you know, uh, goals of care, the conversations, no matter how many times you have them, a lot of times they, they aren't necessarily registering for the patients. And so sometimes you get primary care physicians who are frustrated because they feel the oncologist isn't having these conversations then the oncologist gets frustrated because the primary care physician doesn't understand that we are having the conversations, but they're just not, the patients just aren't registering the, the information because it's hard to, to process some of these very difficult, uh, difficult things to hear. So I think that's probably one of the most frustrating things that happens on both ends, on both the PCP end and the oncologist end. But I think with good communication, that's something that we can usually, um, usually rectify and usually get through. Um, it's more really making sure that the oncologist and the primary care doc has a team-like approach so that everybody's on the same page when it comes to those types of discussions. Are there any specific specialties that you work more with than others? Yeah, so we work a lot with um, the radiation oncologists and the surgical oncologists. Um, I work quite a bit with the pulmonary doctors and the GI doctors because they are um, they do a lot of the scopes for us and um, biopsies. We do a lot with the IR physicians as well because they do a lot of our biopsies as well and port placements, thoris and TCs and things like that. Um, and then pathology, we work quite closely with pathology and radiology as well. Okay. And IR, I'll throw it in there as interventional radiology. Yes. Interventional radiology. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's okay. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> are there, <laughs> are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for Hemonc? There are actually, there's quite a few opportunities outside of Hemonc. So, um, I know some, uh, Hemonc docs finish fellowship and go into the industry, which basically means either working for pharmaceutical companies, helping, uh, create new drugs or helping create new studies to help new drugs get on the market. Um, some hemonc docs actually work with the pharmaceutical industries to create new drugs. So in the lab, um, there's opportunities to give, uh, to educate, to give talks um, on new drugs and new therapies. So there's a lot of opportunities in industry or in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, there's also a lot of opportunities if you're interested in just doing research. People are always looking for really good hemonc research physicians. Um, and then there's always, you know, outside of clinical medicine, when you have a, a background in hematology, oncology, you have a lot of opportunities to, to do um, outreach, to do education, both patient education and other physician education. Um, if you're someone who likes to write, recently there's been an outpouring of blogs written by a lot of physicians and books written by a lot of physicians. And I think that there's um, quite a few hemonc docs who are also starting to do that type of thing. So there are a lot of opportunities out there um, if you decide you don't want to stay in clinical medicine or if you want to stay in clinical medicine and do these things along with that. Okay. What do you like the most about being a hemonc doc? Oh, there's so much. <laughs> I really, I really love the patient interactions. I mean, so growing up, I, I always, my father was, is a physician. And so I saw those patient interactions back, you know, in the, in the eighties um, and nineties where the docs really had a good connection with their patients and had a long relationship with them. The nice thing about Hemonc is you get that continuity of care. You have patients that are your patients, and they think of you as your doctor. So 
or you're their doctor. So they come to you for things. And some of them you see for 10, 15, 20 years, you get to know their families, you get to know, you know, where their kids are going to school, you get to know who just got married, who had a baby. So it's a really amazing relationship that you develop with a patient that I think a lot of other fields don't necessarily offer or allow for because of the way medicine is going. You just don't have that ability to have the continuity of care in a lot of the other fields. Um, and then on top of that, the the new drugs out there for cancer medicine are just amazing in what they're doing for the way we're treating these patients. The Since I finished fellowship even, there have been major breakthroughs that have resulted in people living much, much longer than they'd been living before. I mean, people who were told previously they would only be alive for maybe three to six months are now living two years with some of the newer therapies that we have out there. So so that's really exciting. And then from the hematologic standpoint, I get to see um, patients who who have problems like infertility because they have an antiphospholipid antibody, which is a benign disorder because it's not a cancer, but it can be very devastating for these patients. And I'm often able to help them get pregnant by putting them on blood thinners. So I get to see these really special parts of people's lives and they let me into their lives in ways that I wouldn't necessarily be a part of otherwise. And it's just, it's a really rewarding, uplifting field. There are a lot of very sad experiences and a lot of very touching experiences that can be, like I said, they can be emotionally difficult, but you have to realize that for every couple of people you can't help, there are a couple of people that you can. And the people who you can't necessarily cure or you know, prolong their life, you get to be the person who helps them um, kind of navigate a very difficult path that end-of-life care is. And end-of-life care is another whole part of oncology that we don't discuss very often, but it is really a privilege to be able to help people get to that point in their life where, where they realize that they need to start focusing on quality of life and focusing on time with their family and really appreciating the time that they have. And it, it's not always an easy conversation. It's often not an easy conversation, but to have the privilege to 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 help somebody through that is really it really touches my heart every time I go through it. And I still I still feel very very close to many of my patients who I haven't seen in years and their families. And it's just it's a very rewarding field. I couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. Wow. All right. You, you answered a later question about, <laughs> would you see yourself doing the same thing? So what do you like the least about being a hemonc doc? So it kind of ties into what I was saying previously. It can be very, it can be very sad. You know, when you have, when you have a young person who you're giving them every treatment you possibly can and nothing is working, or you have an older person who just wants to to make it to their grandson's graduation and and you can't make that happen. You it really makes you examine your own life and examine the lives of those around you, your family, your friends and it really makes you more reflective, I think. And that is that can be very difficult to come to terms with because I'm dealing with mortality on a daily basis and that can be very overwhelming. So, I think that that that's probably the hardest thing that I have to do is just coming coming to terms on a fairly regular basis that that life does end and that that is something that we all have to to think about. 
Um, I think a lot of other fields, you don't necessarily see it as often. So it's not something that you have to process as often. So that is something that can be very challenging in this field. Um, and I think it takes a really, a lot, all the hemonc docs I know are very special people. I think it really takes people who, who are willing to, to take that path and, and be introspective at the same time as being reflective and, and empathic. Do you see any major changes coming to hematology oncology? I do. I think that in the next 20 to 30 years, even in community practice, people are going to be focusing more on either hematology or oncology, or they'll be focusing more on specific tumor types. It's already starting to happen in the community now a bit more because there's just so much information out there. I still think that doing both heme and onc fellowships is very beneficial because I think they both feed off of each other. But I do think that down the line, we're going to start seeing more and more people focusing on just certain tumor types or just focusing on hematology. Um, and right now, and I'm sure most people have been watching on TV and in the New York Times, there's all these articles on this immunotherapy I mentioned earlier. I think it's really going to change the way oncology medicine is is practiced because chemotherapy is starting to become less and less uh, exciting and the immunotherapy is becoming more and more exciting. So I think that pretty soon, we've already started having immunotherapy and chemotherapies kind of treating uh, patients with similar malignancies in uh, in succession. Um, I'm anticipating down the line that immunotherapies are going to become more and more used in the oncology world. Okay. And by exciting, you mean just the results are, are very promising? Yeah, the results are very promising. We're finding patients who, I think my, my favorite story is I have a, um, a really sweet lady who has lung cancer and came to me and her oncologist had told her she had a couple months to live and she was on her third line of chemotherapy and she couldn't walk more than a couple blocks without getting really short of breath. And I started her on one of the newer immunotherapy agents. And this was a year and a half ago now. And her husband recently threw her a prom. So she danced until about one in the morning and she had no problems. And then she recently sprained her ankle chasing birds on the beach. <laughs> so, and this is a woman who came to me a year and a half ago, told she had three months to live and couldn't walk more than a couple blocks without sitting down and taking a break because she was so short of breath. And we wouldn't have been able to do that with chemotherapy for sure, because she'd already gone through three lines of chemotherapy and nothing had worked. So the immunotherapy is a really cool thing because it takes your own immune system and uses it to fight off the cancer as opposed to using chemotherapy, which is a drug that just kind of kills off everything. So it's just a, it's a really neat way to start targeting cancers and killing off cancer cells without causing a lot of side effects. Do you see cancer being cured or do you see it more like living with a chronic disease? So it really depends on the type of cancer you're talking about. So the thing with cancer is every cancer is very different. Lung cancer is extremely different from lymphoma, which is extremely different from a pancreatic cancer. So there are some cancers that are absolutely curable if found early enough. There are some cancers that are curable even if they're found at stage four. There's some cancers like chronic lymphocytic leukemia that you can live with your entire life and never need to be treated for. So it would be living with cancer. 
there are some cancers that we think of as just chronic illnesses the way you would think of diabetes. So for example, um, if you have something along the lines of a, um, a myelo, uh, MGUS or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance. So that is kind of a precursor to cancer and people live with that their entire lives and they never, some people never need to be treated. So I think it's kind of a difficult question to answer because each cancer is so di different, but there are cancers like follicular lymphoma that some people live with their whole lives and never need to be treated. Some people have follicular lymphoma and it progresses and they do need to be treated. And then the question is, can they be cured or not? And that depends on a lot of variables. So when people say, do you think we'll find a cure for cancer? My typical response is, well, we have found a cure for many cancers, but some cancers are chronic illnesses that people live with and it doesn't affect your life other than you have to come visit me every couple of months. <laughs> okay. Any last words of wisdoms, wisdom for those that are thinking about Hemonc or maybe in their internal medicine residencies and aren't sure what fellowship path to take? Sure. So I think the most important thing first, when you're trying to figure out what fellowship you want to do is trying to rotate in that, in that field, because you don't really understand what it is until you do it. I mean, I thought I wanted to do pediatrics until I got into my third year of, of med school. And then I thought I wanted to do vascular surgery. I didn't decide internal medicine itself until my fourth year of, of med school. Um, I didn't decide hemonc until my second year of fellowship. And that was after I'd done multiple hemonc rotations. So I think it's really important that if you think you really love a field, make sure you rotate through it at least once so you get a feel for it. If you are really interested in hemonc, I would say try rotating through an outpatient hemonc clinic at least once because uh, it is very, very different from the inpatient heme and the inpatient onc service. And you really need to get an idea of if, if it's something that you love because it really does take, take a lot of, uh, it takes a very special person, I think, to go, to go into, into a lot of these fields. You have to have a very specific passion, you know, cardiology, GI, hemonc pulmonary, they all require you to, to be very passionate about that field. Um, I also think that a really useful thing would be talking to mentors. So talking to other attendings in the field, talk to um, fellows. Fellows are actually a really great resource and they're always, most of them are very willing to talk to med students and residents and some of them will even be interested in getting you involved in research with them. Um, I had med students and residents writing papers with me when I was in training because if they were, if you're interested in it, doing the, doing some um, reading and doing some background uh, research in it would be really helpful in figuring out if you're interested in the science behind it because the science behind it is also something that's really interesting and something you should make sure you're interested in. Um, so I think really finding yourself good mentors, finding yourself good research projects, and rotating through through whatever field it is you're interested in is is really a good idea before you make that decision. If for some reason you aren't able to rotate through it, don't don't be discouraged. Just make sure you're talking to a lot of people in the field because they'll be able to give you a really good idea as to what that particular field encompasses and and will be able to help you figure out if your personality is meant for that field, if your clinical interest and your science interest is, is in line with what that field does, um, and if uh, what goals that you want in your life, they'll be fulfilled by, by that field. 
All right, that was Hematology Oncology from Shika. Thanks for sharing your story. If you're interested in hematology oncology, I encourage you to re-listen to this podcast and take some tidbits that Shika talked about to help you on your journey. If there's a specialty that you are interested in hearing about or if you know somebody that would be a great guest for the Specialty Stories podcast, please let me know, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. Even if I've had a specialty on that, that you want to hear more about, what I'm trying to do is cover academic and community and male and female and retired and program director, residency director. So I want to cover all facets of it. So please shoot me an email if you have anybody interesting that you can think about. I hope you have a great week and hopefully I'll have another podcast here for you next week here at the Specialty Stories. 